0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to event where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. All right, all right, enough of that. Is everybody listening out there? <laughs> I can't coerce anybody to do it. I do appreciate you listening, if you in fact you are. And you must be, otherwise you wouldn't hear this. I've got to get my logic circuits readjusted, apparently. Anyway, welcome back. Another week goes by here. It's Rick Wagner getting it right on z 1100 and 92.7, and of course KGLN at 980 and 101.3. And the Internet, which we have quite a few listeners on. I appreciate that. And our podcasting, which uh, has been going very well. So everything is uh, going uh, copacetic. And I think that's uh, really because of you guys out there. So it's quite a week. And just for the sake of argument, let's pretend that the, or let's assume, perhaps better, that the country is in some way recognizable Uh, compared to, say, 20 years ago. I'd like to think of it that way. I mean, I think we'd like to think we'd still ground ourselves in reality a little bit, but you wouldn't know it by reading the news. I mean, I have a couple of examples of just lunacy out there that uh, I could get into, but I mean, the the examples are so many that uh, it seems almost too easy. Jamal Bowman, for instance, he is the uh, individual congressman, who decided to become confused during the vote uh, on the budgetary stuff. What was it, uh, two and a half months ago? And he became confused about which door he could use while uh, they were in session and decided to pull the fire alarm and then run away. (laughs) So Jamal, who apparently, if you listen to his story, has not really got enough going on to understand what fire means, Uh, by reading it, has also come up with quite the idea that we should come up with like a $14 trillion reparation bill uh, and doesn't seem to understand how you generate that money. I'm uh, terribly afraid that his idea about generating it involves just printing it um, since we're borrowing it from everybody in addition to uh, creating it now electronically, of course. Uh, The idea of that and what it would do to our national debt if we tried to issue that especially considered our GDP at this point, would be disaster. He clearly has absolutely no idea about the function of even basic economic principles. And yet he is, of course, in Congress. I mean, we've always had people like that in Congress. But I never remember seeing so many and them speaking out so loudly. I think in the past, you know, people kind of shushed them down like, "Eh, that's enough of that, you know, please, you're making us look bad. Not so much now. Maybe it's because there's so many more platforms for him to speak on. I don't know. But here is something that I wanted to talk about today that is different. because There's a lot more going on in the world than, will Donald Trump You know, have a good day in New Hampshire? I mean, we're interested in that. And the answer is yes. And will he win the primary? Yes. And uh, will he go on to be the nominee? Probably yes. And will they continue to uh, hector him uh, with... Lawfare, yes. So we know those things. But here's the here's the better question. Is there other things going on in the world outside of what we're focused on right now that we maybe ought to be paying a little bit of attention to? Not even the second-tier stuff, but below that, let's say third-tier news that is still important that we just don't seem to be talking about. And I, I've been a little alarmed about what's going on with Pakistan and Iran. Now, I recognize that these are not areas where we have a lot of reporting on the specific with any specificity about the source of the conflict, what's going on, anything like that. We just hear, yeah, well, they're bombing each other, and this, thing. yeah, we. I'm, why is that? And here's something else that they that they haven't mentioned, at least that I haven't heard. I'm sure they have someplace. Uh, you know, Pakistan is a nuclear power. Iran isn't one yet, but by golly, we seem to be doing everything we can to make sure they do get it. But Pakistan has been a nuclear power for quite some time. And I wanted to, to explain how that happened because you think Pakistan? Nuclear, yes, it is. Uh, in India is also a nuclear power and they had a nuclear test in what 74. I got a bunch of notes here. And one of the things that you need to do periodically is to not just, not just go to the usual suspects for news. Like I try and read the Eurasian times, uh, the Jerusalem Post, and occasionally the BBC, although you, know, you have to put a filter through that because they're very far left on some things. Because things are happening that are going to affect us most likely, uh, and we're not getting the information about it just so we can put everything that's happening like in the Middle East into some kind of context. Because it's going to have some sort of boiling point here pretty soon. I just don't know what it's going to be and how extensive it will be. But yeah, Pakistan was very upset at when, when they had a war with India in 1971. Now, Pakistan and India have been fighting over some land, big surprise, for quite some time, usually the Kashmir region, I think, what that is. And that doesn't mean everybody wears a sweater, but uh, it's a region between the two countries. They both sort of claim dominion over it. And it's been going on for a long time. Now, in 72, because... They knew that India was working on this kind of stuff. The Prime Minister then initiated what was called their, the nuclear program on plutonium product, focusing on plutonium production. Now, they shifted the focus to uranium enrichment because frankly it was easier. Uh, plutonium production is a little more sophisticated. And then as they were trying to plod along here to keep up with what was going on in India, they had a German trained metallurgist by the name of, I have this guy's name, Abdul Ghatir Khan. He had been working in uranium enrichment technology in the Netherlands. He went back to Pakistan in '74 and led the development of the enrichment facilities, and they ended up being able to be a nuclear power. Now, they conducted a series of uh, laboratory tests in the 80s, and eventually they did six nuclear tests in 1998. That was shortly after India really showed their capability even though everybody knew that they had the ability to have nuclear weapons before that this border that they have is gone back and forth well what you need to know is that they also have a problem with the border between Pakistan and Iran they have had and I've got oh, I've got some more stuff on that I think here I have too many notes I made too many notes about this it's hard to uh, sort through these things but each side out there between Iran and Pakistan are claiming the other side is harboring some sort of separatist. Uh, Pakistan is being accused of some Sunni militant group that's running attacks in Iran. And Pakistan says that, uh, the Iranians are supporting some separatists. In other words, people who want to break away from Pakistan, suppose the ones who want to break away from Iran in their countries. So, and no, these things have been escalating. And, of course, that's where we get these reciprocal strikes, right? Iran target, targeted some bases in Pakistan, and Pakistan retaliated with strikes inside Iran. Now, th- these, these two countries here are not anything to shake a stick at in terms of their military capabilities. And what surprised me when I looked into it is Pakistan has quite a formidable military in comparison to what I thought it was. I knew that they had a lot of equipment that uh, we'd provided and some other places as well. They actually have a, a larger military in terms of tanks, fighting vehicles, and total artillery compared to Iran, which is surprising. Iran has a bigger air force and just in terms of aircraft, but Pakistan has more of the advanced fighters and attack aircraft, such as helicopters. Iran, of course, you, as you would expect, uh, has a much larger navy and uh, had, do not yet do not yet possess nuclear weapons. So when you look at that, that's a pretty volatile situation that's going on there. And we seem to just kind of like hear it mentioned. This could turn into a real issue. Iran really wants a nuclear device. Pakistan already has one and they're fighting. That's never a good thing. And we seem to be enabling by not really taking steps necessary to get in the way of their development of a nuclear arsenal. Now, by arsenal, I mean, you know, something that they can deliver. And they seem very close to it. So that's going on. It's important to pay attention to things like that. Hi, folks. Thanks for sticking around. Rick Wagner here, getting it right. I appreciate you uh, sitting around through the break there to come back and talk with us a little bit more. I hope I wasn't trivializing your time with discussing Pakistan and Iran and sort of what's going on there. But I think it's very important because it can easily boil over into other things. And we're focused so much on the Israel conflict right now uh, that we forget that this whole region is bubbling over. Turkey, by the way, also has been uh, bombing a little bit of things Uh, in its area, about Kurdish separatists. So, you know, I mean, everybody is fighting somebody, and there seems to be no loss of numbers in terms of groups that would like to break off and be their own countries or whatever the case may be. There's plenty of them in there. And Turkey is, I think, going to be a problem all by itself. It's become a lot more allied with uh, the Soviet Union and China, and it is, in fact, a NATO member, which is a little startling and it's also, over the last 10 or 12 years, well, a little longer than that, become less open to religions, shall we say. It's become significantly more Islamic in its approach than it used to be. And that seems to be influencing their policy as well. So this whole region, as I keep saying, we have to keep our eye on it so we understand what happens uh, between everybody and why it's important. For instance, India. India is very interested in what's going on in the Middle East now. India has tried to assert itself as more of a strategic power in the last few years. They had this new prime minister named Modi, and we saw him with uh, Biden. I'm sure Biden didn't know who he was, um, especially given some of his comments in the past about uh, uh, Indian individuals. And uh, the guy just... It's unbelievable to me that he's in the position he is. Anyway, India has been trying to act out more in the Indian Ocean because they're importing a lot more oil. They're trying to ramp up into more industrialization, and to do that, they need a lot of oil, and they don't have much where they're at. So the fact that they're importing a lot of oil from the Middle East makes them very interested in what? Well, the Red Sea and the Suez Canal situation because you slow things down there too much, it hurts their economy. So they're pretty interested in it, and they've been trying to build their own naval presence in the Indian Ocean. India to its credit has sort of leaned a little more towards Israel and some of the uh, Gulf states like the United Arab Emirates and those guys and gotten away from associating as much as they were with uh, Iran and Egypt. And that's probably good for us. But it still shows you how interdependent everything is that's going on through there. And because of that, it's almost impossible to follow all the developments daily and see what's happening. And, and it's, it's not really on our scoreboard here, is it? And it probably shouldn't be something we think about every day, but I wanted to bring it to your attention so that you understand that there's more going on there and as you have this conflict with Israel and people shifting around dynamically with that, it also is affecting these other conflicts. And Iran has got their finger in everything. Now, that can be good or bad. In one sense, it's bad because they're supplying all of these splinter groups. And let's face it, most of these guys they're supplying weapons to you know, are sleeping in the back of a truck or underneath it, and they're not really developing sophisticated drone technology. No, we've apparently provided that to Iran, and they've copied a lot of it, and there you go. But they are really producing a lot of the weaponry and intelligence capabilities for all these groups around the place, you know, Hezbollah, Houthi, Hamas, a couple of I can't think of off the top of my head. So the kind of good thing about that is they're really stretched pretty thin, and now they're having this conflict with Pakistan on the other end of everything, And so that sort of makes it difficult for them to do a whole lot more. On the other hand, it creates a little more dangerous situation, if you look at it from this standpoint, in that they've lost control a little bit of the narrative. They got their fingers in everything. I mean, so far, I think our intelligence has shown that members of the uh, Iranian Republican Guard, which we used to think was a terrorist group, Uh, have been showing up in Yemen and so forth, probably providing some technical expertise on the use of the weapons they're giving these guys. So I'd like to think that they're too busy and spread a little bit too thin, and that might be the case. Uh, We can keep our fingers crossed on that because they're the real problem. I mean, they're the ones that are supplying everybody, stirring everything up. We've been giving them money, and they've just been funneling money right back into these folks apparently. So we're we're trying to keep our eye on that. At the same time, as most of you know, there's a real situation in Taiwan. You may remember that last week Taiwan had an election, and they elected someone who the Chinese really don't like. I mean, he sort of talks about, quote, independence a little bit uh, and is not interested in, quote, reuniting with China and if you go back and look at the history between Taiwan and China, it's really not a situation where Taiwan was closely a part of China and they broke away and everything. it's not. The discussion points from China about Taiwan are a little misleading. Nevertheless, this guy became elected president and the Chinese have been saying all along, oh, if you elect this guy, it's going to upset us. We're going to have trouble. Well, they did. So they, of course, did some more military maneuvers and so forth. But they've done enough to where, um, you know, they're, they're worrying Taiwan. And so Taiwan's constructed a couple of uh, more military bases uh, and storing uh, sort of the anti-ship missiles there. And they're wanting more stuff from us. Everybody wants stuff from us. I mean, that's nice to, you know, make good things and, you know, people want it. Also, we appear to be just giving it away but this is this is an issue the, the more you arm people on both sides i'm suggesting we shouldn't i'm just saying you understand that it's a lot more possible to have an incident uh, and an incident can set something off now china may want an incident they may you know want to do something my theory is not so much an invasion per se but a blockade I mean, it wouldn't be very difficult for the Chinese Navy, now the biggest in the world, I think, in in terms of tonnage, to blockade Taiwan so that their exports would have a heck of a time getting out. And they'd cough up some reason, like, oh, there's things going out of the country that are adverse to uh, the interests of China in some way. I don't know. If I had some time, I could make something up. They'll make something up for sure. And put a stranglehold on the ability for Taiwan to ship out their massive production of chips computer chips and if they do that all of us everywhere else see those chips used for instance if you have an iphone probably the chips were made in taiwan i think about 95 percent of the sophisticated chips other than some of the new ai ones that are coming out of nvidia and a little bit of amd uh, are manufactured in taiwan so they could put a pretty good stranglehold on them if they wanted to and not necessarily take a lot of military action. It would put the Taiwanese in a pretty strange position because are are they ready to engage in what we like to refer to now as kinetic action to try and break a blockade? And are the Chinese, if they did something like this, would it be a complete blockade? Or would they just be screwing around with shipping, stopping shipping, making it difficult, searching ships for, you know, whatever they come up with is what they believe, contraband that somehow is harmful to China. You know, they can come up with anything. So you don't know. And at what level would they try and shoot their way out of there? By that is Taiwan. Um, there's a lot of people thinking about that stuff. And when they think about it in terms of the United States, what they come up with is that we're not really prepared to do much to help these guys beyond what we've supplied so far. We're stretched pretty thin. Our naval power is, is essentially down we are actually shrinking our military budget. Remember, because of this rate of inflation, if you're only increasing the military budget 2%, you're losing ground, right? And that's what we've been doing. To say nothing of the fact that, when we've discussed this here, recruiting is way down for all of the services. The Marines are the closest to meeting their their goals. They're having a hard time getting people in there. They're having a hard time getting people who aren't uh, problematic in terms of obesity and educational achievement, uh, just the reading and writing part of it. And, of course, we have a much more sophisticated military now in terms of weaponry, and you got to have a little bit more on the ball to be able to operate some of this stuff. And so it's been very difficult, pilots especially. Uh, this is another thing that we're seeing. And we don't just mean fighter pilots, but, I mean, you understand that the logistical chain uh, for a country like ourselves that sits between two oceans uh, involves not only getting things there by ship, but occasionally we've got to get manpower and equipment there uh, by air. And so there's a large contingent of the Air Force and the Navy that is really engaged in logistical operations and not necessarily top gun. And in the end, logistical operations can be more important because if you don't get the supplies, you can't maintain any projection of force. So all of that is churning away, and you have the stuff in the Middle East we're talking about, and for some reason, a lot of people have just sort of kind of forgotten about Ukraine, which I'm sure the Ukrainians don't like, Uh, but they supposedly had an offensive recently, and it really didn't go anywhere. And despite the fact that we keep hearing about all their successes on the battlefield, it doesn't seem to be translating into pushing Russians anywhere. So it's become a more and more dangerous world, and it's important to just kind of Have a overview of all these different problems helps you sort of. All right. Thanks for sticking around there at the bottom of the hour. We appreciate it. I'm getting it right here. I'm Rick Wagner. And once again, I appreciate your listenership. So hopefully that uh, last couple of segments uh, was informative and gives some perspective or at least framing for all the crazy things are going on in the Middle East. Middle East has, of course, been an area that has been nothing but pretty much constant warfare and back and forth between various empires, groups trying to uh, like after Alexander the Great, where his generals were fighting back and forth over there, trying to divide up his empire or trying to make the whole empire one of theirs, which never happened. It just it just shows again and again why the area for a variety of cultural and geographical regions uh, reasons rather. Uh, is is always got something going on. It seems like now, certain times in history, it wasn't all that important because we didn't care what was going on in there so much. We didn't need the oil. We were not trying to get to the Suez Canal. You know, a few things like that. All of that has, of course, changed. And Israel wasn't there until what nineteen forty eight. So there, there's a lot that we don't even know. And so I was, I was reading. I've been reading rather some notes about Alexander the Great's campaign through that region now Alexander went of course across into what ended up being Turkey all the way into Afghanistan and but he did he swung down if i can use that word swung through Mesopotamia Syria what's now Syria those kinds of things all the way through to Egypt as i think we've talked about before so when you read his campaigns you realize that one of the most important things about any, any kind of campaign is, of course, geography and the general's grasp of geography and how it affects his army and what he's hoping to accomplish. And when you look back at Alexander, you can see that at this point, uh, when he's in Mesopotamia, which remember, that's the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates River it used to be called the Fertile Crescent. He's chasing Darius, who's the, uh, it's Darius II, if I remember, who is the uh, king of kings, as they like to call himself, uh, Persia, and he's on the run because Alexander has beaten his army, led by another general, Meander, I think was the guy's name, uh, at the Battle of Granicus, which was a river the first battles. Then he defeated Darius himself on the battlefield. Well, I mean, not hand-to-hand, but Darius was directing it at uh, Issus. So he's now chasing him, because he beat him once again. The Persians had a much larger force than his, and he managed to capture, actually, the Persian camp, with lots of loot, as they would say, and chased Darius off, who I think the, uh, the term is, he ran away, and left his wife and kids, which... Alexander captured, but treated very well. So he's essentially chasing Darius. as He's conquering things as he goes. Conquers Tyre, which is, you may uh, remember that city. And if you were to go to Tyre today, because it sort of sits, or it used to sit, on kind of a little island out there in the Mediterranean, well, they refused, and they're a very well-fortified city, they refused uh, Alexander's demand that they surrendered to him. So he spent quite a long period of time building a road out to them using stones and sand and all sorts of things to build essentially a road to them so he could get his army to them and then he took the city so he's pretty determined now when i'm reading he's in the area between euphrates and the tigris and he's moving up towards babylon that's where darius is holed up and trying to get another army together and he's got a huge army because remember These guys can call in people from all over the place. Alexander's an army of about 50,000, but they're all warriors. Now, there's probably more than that. they are camp followers and drovers and things like that. However, it is estimated that Darius was able to put almost a million people out for whatever purpose he was trying to do uh, at Babylon. Now, that also included... Tons of people were essentially noncombatants. A lot of levies. See, Alexander's people were trained warriors, people who had been training for battle pretty much most of their life. A lot of the Persian group were people who were pressed into service and given whatever weapon they had come to hand. So they weren't exactly the best shock troops. It's important to to realize that geography doesn't change that much. And seeing how someone like Alexander uses the terrain, thinks about his flanks, his supply line, all this kind of stuff, it just kind of snaps into focus, everything that's going on in the Middle East. There are some changes. Most of the time, technology doesn't change battle that much. You still have an infantry. Your cavalry is now armor, but takes pretty much the same approach. But you do have air power. And we have some missiles, which is always kind of interesting. Now, they had missiles as well, but they didn't have the range that we have now. By missiles, they had, of course, you know, catapults and uh, ballistas and things like that. So when you look at this, you realize that the only real change is the ability to project force through missile or air power. And then you start realizing that this week... The U.N. Uh, envoys, if you want to call them that, who are in charge of uh, monitoring the Iranian nuclear program, said that it was their belief, this one guy that was speaking out, that Iran could probably get enough nuclear material within a week to build a bomb. And in a month, he might be able to build six of them. Now, just the nuclear material by itself isn't enough. I mean, you have to have a delivery system, right? even if you can build the bomb. The difference between the problem you would have in the Middle East and, say, someone that wanted to attack us was that it's all about delivery. And intercontinental ballistic missile is another kettle of fish besides just building the bomb. But in the Middle East, especially if you're doing something with Israel, you can drive one there, which makes it all the more chilling. I I don't think anybody wants Iran to try and cook up a missile big enough to deliver an atomic warhead and have it flying over them. I guess they could buy one from North Korea, but those aren't particularly accurate either. And that's not something you want to mess around with, like, oh, we were a little bit off and uh, we landed in Syria. So, no, that's not what you want. So uh, it's a frightening prospect. You see how important it is for places like Israel as they're trying to push back uh, to disarm these groups that are, of course, armed by Iran to manage to be defensive from any attacks from the outside, maintain air superiority to make sure people can't just, you know, lob something at them and then keep their supply lines open. Folks, when they describe battles, almost always forget that you know, half the battle is your logistics, your supply train, whatever it is, whether it's on mules or whether it's in, in driven in Humvees or whatever the case may be. If somebody cuts off your supply lines, you're going to slow down pretty fast. And in the case of modern warfare, you might slow down even faster than in ancient warfare because the horses and so forth can go a little while without eating. But those tanks and all of that mechanized stuff, you know, when it runs out of gas and it goes through a lot of gas, That's it. They just become sort of big paperweights. And remember, some of these things use a lot of fuel. Something like an Abrams tank uh, isn't measured in miles per gallon, but in gallons per mile. So, to say nothing about the need for replacement parts and so forth. So, when you look at the Middle East, and you understand all these different wheels that are going, and we talked about Pakistan and Iran, you know, trading punches back and forth, and the fact that Pakistan is nuclear power in Benland for a long time and Iran is practically one now. And they're both kind of crazy and Iran seems to be really crazy. And at the same time they're pushing things around at the other end of their country. Um you just wonder what's going to happen there. I mean it's it's open for mistake, if nothing else. And like we talked about in the last segment, I mean you kind of hope that at some point Iran gets stretched so thin in so many different ways then maybe they're not very effective anywhere in their supply line. So we can hope for that. But there's a lot out there that's happening and that I, you, you need to have some kind of, need to some kind of perspective on it. Historical and sometimes the history is like we talked about the seventies, right? Which nobody wants to talk about. It's like ancient history and it's very important. It's sort of like this idea that uh, we seem to be by we, I mean the Americans seem to be pushing on the uh, Israelis, which is this two-state solution, the Palestinian state. Well, if, if you've seen anything in history, is everything that Israel has given up for the most part has just turned into a problem, and it has not solved anything. And the notion that you hear that somehow, like Hamas, is separate from the population of Gaza doesn't seem to be true. Now, I'm certain there are are people in Gaza, and the West Blank, for that matter, that uh, aren't followers of Hamas and don't like what they're doing. But for the most part, it seems like most do. We have some of the hostages coming out saying that the general population in Gaza during their captivity was supporting Hamas. We have the fact that uh, the first election in Gaza put Hamas into power, and they didn't have any more elections. And it doesn't seem like it changed anything. So a two state solution seems to be just another stopgap on the way to running israel out of the area in one way or another uh, it's uh, it's unclear why the biden administration and the obama administration for that matter and some of the other globalists out there uh, want to force a palestinian state into you know half of israel or you know 35 or 40 percent of it, depending on where you, who you talk to. And how. what makes you think that will make a difference, given the history? It's hard to imagine that kind of delusion, doesn't it? Anyway, we got to watch that carefully. Uh, here's some other great uh, updates on different things that I thought. Here's a uh, really surprising story, of course, is that uh, Nikki Haley uh, is ruled out being Donald Trump's vice president. Well, she says that's off the table. What a surprise. I thought that, you know, they were best buds. It was just a matter of time till they got together. Having Nikki Haley say that it's off the table to be Trump's vice president is sort of like saying, I've decided not to win the lottery, except that my chances of winning the lottery might actually be better than Haley's chance of having Trump pick her as vice president. At least that's, it's in my view. She is, she's vaguely delusional about a lot of these things. Uh, her response to this stuff. Like the fact that DeSantis is getting a lot more endorsements out of her home state, the one where she's a governor, than she is, is explained away because she was so tough on the legislature. And they didn't like that. Oh, Maybe some of that's true, but it doesn't seem to explain the whole thing. But uh, it's an interesting dynamic there. We'll see what happens in New Hampshire. Let's remember that in New Hampshire, uh, independents can vote in the Primary. Now, we had a lot of people in Iowa, particularly in the one county, the one out of 99 counties, uh, which I think was it, was it, is it Des Moines is in there? Uh, Nikki Haley did win that county. And I did read a report where that county ran out of forms to switch political parties because they could come in and change from Democrat to Republican and then vote in the primary. And, of course, down the road they could change back again. So apparently there's a huge amount of uh, people who, they don't have a primary there really for the Democrats, so they just went and had, of not a presidential primary, and so they just decided to change and try and get somebody that is the least Trump-like, which is not what Republicans really want. If you really look beneath the hood, you see that it's almost all never-Trumpers, and Democrats that won Nikki Haley. Uh, even Nikki Haley supporters might be out there. I don't want to mean to undermine you, but, uh, I mean, that just seems to be what the way it's written out there. Uh, they, they want her. She seems like she's a moderate, which is to say someone who will really just waffle on everything. And we've seen that from her in the past. She has just changed her view like a human weather vane. And so what happens after New Hampshire? which is, you know, another state where she can have a lot of independents and people who aren't really Republicans vote in the Republican primary. And she's been working that hard. I don't know. Right now, Trump leads by double digits in that state. But you won't know until votes are cast. She may do better. And she may decide that's, you know, going to be something she can capitalize on. But if you look down the road, I mean, South Carolina's next. I don't think she's going to win South Carolina home state so I I don't know what good it would do to come out of uh, uh, New Hampshire and then just go right into your own state and lose it so I I don't I just don't see the path for her people say oh we see a path for her I don't see what the path is I see you can elongate it but you can't get you just I don't see the long-term path not while Trump is still available now Of course, there are plenty of people uh, who are trying to make Trump unavailable. The uh, Secretary of State in Maine, for instance, uh, Colorado's own Supreme Court. Uh, Let's see. There's a couple of others out there that I can't quite call. There's two or three places where these 14th Amendment arguments are still up there, but I think they're going to put on hold because the United States Supreme Court has agreed to hear the Colorado case, which had set something up to either knock that whole thing down or do something really crazy. And my prediction is that they will knock it down in Colorado. How they do it will be very interesting. They could sort of barely put their nose in the tent and say something like, well, we find that the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, does not apply to presidential candidates because they have been found not to be officers of the United States. It's a, a different kind of definition for presidential candidates. And then just leave the whole insurrection thing hanging, which is what the court just below the Colorado Supreme Court did. That court found that, yes, he uh, engaged in insurrection, but the, the uh, 14th Amendment Section 3 didn't apply to him. I would be very disappointed if they leave it to that. You can see how that's just something that is going to. I mean, it's uh, it just it just leaves more questions and allows more debate and opens up more down the road issues because we we haven't really de- defined insurrection very well. When they passed the Fourteenth Amendment, they had a pretty good idea what insurrection was. They just come out of the civil war. That's what they're talking about. That's an insurrection. 600,000, more than 600,000 Americans died. Uh, you know, we practically destroyed the South and didn't do a lot of good for much of the North. And that was clearly on their mind. Not what they're trying to make this out to be. And we keep seeing things that are, seem to be far worse than the January 6th stuff, uh, happen Regularly, certainly, we saw a lot of it in 2020 uh, with all of the riots, and then you know, further on, we're seeing it now in these Hamas things. They, you know, the Hamas supporters, you know, tried to get into the White House last week, um, tried to knock the fences down. That was pretty good. That seemed sort of, uh I don't know, it didn't seem exactly like insurrection, like, but it did seem certainly dangerous, mob-like behavior that. You might want to be interested in arresting some of the ringleaders. But you know what? The intense scrutiny and time, they're still trying to arrest people from January 6th. The time they spent doing that I do not think is going to be duplicated in trying to find people who tried to rush the White House a week ago. I think that's just going to all drift away. They're not going to try and find, you know, a 100 people who... Uh, wandered around and uh, were close to the fence they were trying to tear down, none of that's going to happen. And in in the meantime, we're waiting for something to happen with Hunter Biden, who could still be held in contempt of Congress, although it looks like he's going to accede to the request to to a deposition behind closed doors uh, in Congress. And that may stop them from putting a referral into the Department of Justice for a prosecution of contempt of Congress, which I think would not do a whole lot of good either. I mean, the Department of Justice would just slow walk the thing until, you know, we forgot it was even out there. I mean, that'd be my per- that's my prediction. But we will have to see. Now, on the other hand, uh, Peter Navarro, remember Peter Navarro? He's an economic advisor, wrote a book called In Trump Time, which actually had an interesting guy, kind of a funny guy, too, um, He wouldn't testify because he said he had uh, presidential immunity. So he didn't turn up and didn't turn up with documents. So they referred him for contempt of Congress. And he was sentenced uh, the other day to uh, six months in jail. Yeah. Uh, uh, The court should impose, this is what the prosecutor said, the court should impose a sentence of six months imprisonment, reflecting the most severe guidelines, complaint, punishment available and find the defendant $200,000. Okay, uh she contends that uh, this is the prosecutor. Navarro chose allegiance to former president Donald Trump over the rule of law. Wow. They just don't, you know, the irony of that statement is just something that just sort of leaps out at you. And the unawareness of people saying things like that given their behavior is really interesting too. But so and Steve Bannon who also asserted executive privilege in his communications with the president, uh, was, been, was sentenced to what? Let's see. I think four months in jail. Um, uh, yeah. And a $6,500 fine. He's also on appeal. We'll see what happens there, but they didn't, you know, they were all over that. It's a topsy-turvy world we're living in, my friends. And, uh, I didn't want to just jump around and just be depressing this week by talking about the Middle East and then kind of what's happening here. But we have sort of a, a, a spiral we're in uh, all over the world, seems like. Certainly, you know, when you go from the Pacific Ocean to Ukraine to the Middle East, things start seeming very out of control and very World War I-like. You know, if you read about the how World War I got started, all the competing and interlocking treaties and how people just got drugged into one thing after another, it was a little like that. So we need to watch that very carefully. And just put everything in some context. That, that's what I hope for you guys out there. And, uh, you know, otherwise than that, have a good week. Talk to you next week.